we continue with part two of the opinion of the court in United States v. Virginia. Part four. We note once again the core instruction of this court's pathmarking decisions in JEB v. Alabama XREL and Mississippi University for Women. Parties who seek to defend gender-based government action must demonstrate an exceedingly persuasive justification for that action. Today's skeptical scrutiny of official action denying rights or opportunities based on sex responds to volumes of history. As a plurality of this court acknowledged a generation ago, our nation has had a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination. Through a century plus three decades and more of that history, women did not count among voters composing We the People. Not until 1920 did women gain a constitutional right to the franchise. And for a half century thereafter, it remained the prevailing doctrine that government, both federal and state, could withhold from women opportunities accorded men so long as any basis in reason could be conceived for the discrimination. In 1971, for the first time in our nation's history, this court ruled in favor of a woman who complained that her state had denied her the equal protection of its laws. In Reed v. Reed. Since Reed, the court has repeatedly recognized that neither federal nor state government acts compatibly with the equal protection principle when a law or official policy denies to women simply because they are women full citizenship stature, equal opportunity to aspire, achieve, participate in, and contribute to society based on their individual talents and capacities. Without equating gender classifications for all purposes to classifications based on race or national origin, the court, in post-read decisions, has carefully inspected official action that closes a door or denies opportunity to women or to men. To summarize the court's current directions for cases of official classification based on gender, focusing on the differential treatment or denial of opportunity for which relief is sought, the reviewing court must determine whether the proffered justification is exceedingly persuasive. The burden of justification is demanding, and it rests entirely on the state. The state must show at least that the challenged classification serves important governmental objectives and that the discriminatory means employed are substantially related to the achievement of those objectives. The justification must be genuine, 
not hypothesized or invented post hoc in response to litigation. And it must not rely on overbroad generalizations about the different talents, capacities, or preferences of males and females. The heightened review standard our precedent establishes does not make sex a proscribed classification. Supposed inherent differences are no longer accepted as a ground for race or national origin classifications. Physical differences between men and women, however, are enduring. The two sexes are not fungible. A community made up exclusively of one sex is different from a community composed of both. Inherent differences between men and women, we have come to appreciate, remain cause for celebration, but not for denigration of the members of either sex or for artificial constraints on an individual's opportunity. Sex classifications may be used to compensate women for particular economic disabilities they have suffered, to promote equal employment opportunity, or to advance full development of the talent and capacities of our nation's people. But such classifications may not be used, as they once were, to create or perpetuate the legal, social, and economic inferiority of women. Measuring the record in this case against the review standard just described, we conclude that Virginia has shown no exceedingly persuasive justification for excluding all women from the citizen-soldier training afforded by VMI. We therefore affirm the Fourth Circuit's initial judgment, which held that Virginia had violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Because the remedy proffered by Virginia, the Mary Baldwin V-Will program, does not cure the constitutional violation, i.e. does not provide equal opportunity, we reverse the Fourth Circuit's final judgment in this case. Part 5. The Fourth Circuit initially held that Virginia had advanced no state policy by which it could justify, under equal protection principles, its determination to afford VMI's unique type of program to men and not to women. Virginia challenges that liability ruling and asserts two justifications in defense of VMI's exclusion of women. First, the Commonwealth contends, single-sex education provides important educational benefits, and the option of single-sex education contributes to diversity in educational approaches. Second, the Commonwealth argues, the unique VMI method of character development and leadership training, the school's adversative approach, would have to be modified were VMI to admit women. We consider these two justifications in turn. 
Section A. Single-sex education affords pedagogical benefits to at least some students, Virginia emphasizes, and that reality is uncontested in this litigation. Similarly, it is not disputed that diversity among public educational institutions can serve the public good. But Virginia has not shown that VMI was established or has been maintained with a view to diversifying by its categorical exclusion of women educational opportunities within the Commonwealth. In cases of this genre, our precedent instructs that benign justifications proffered in defense of categorical exclusions will not be accepted automatically. A tenable justification must describe actual state purposes, not rationalizations for actions, in fact, differently grounded. Mississippi University for Women is immediately in point. There, the state asserted, in justification of its exclusion of men from a nursing school, that it was engaging in educational affirmative action by compensating for discrimination against women. Undertaking a searching analysis, the court found no close resemblance between the alleged objective and the actual purpose underlying the discriminatory classification. Pursuing a similar inquiry here, we reach the same conclusion. Neither recent nor distant history bears out Virginia's alleged pursuit of diversity through single-sex educational options. In 1839, when the Commonwealth established VMI, a range of educational opportunities for men and women was scarcely contemplated. Higher education at the time was considered dangerous for women. Reflecting widely held views about women's proper place, the nation's first universities and colleges, for example, Harvard in Massachusetts, William and Mary in Virginia, admitted only men. VMI was not at all novel in this respect. In admitting no women, VMI followed the lead of the Commonwealth's flagship school, the University of Virginia, founded in 1819. No struggle for the admission of women to a state university, a historian has recounted, was longer drawn out or developed more bitterness than at the University of Virginia. In 1879, the state Senate resolved to look into the possibility of higher education for women, recognizing that Virginia has never at any period of her history provided for the higher education of her daughters, though she has liberally provided for the higher education of her sons. Despite this recognition, no new opportunities were instantly open to women. Virginia eventually provided for several women's seminaries and colleges. 
Farmville Female Seminary became a public institution in 1884. Two women's schools, Mary Washington College and James Madison University, were founded in 1908. Another, Radford University, was founded in 1910. By the mid-1970s, all four schools had become co-educational. Debate concerning women's admission as undergraduates at the main university continued well past the century's midpoint. Familiar arguments were rehearsed. If women were admitted, it was feared, they would encroach on the rights of men. There would be new problems of government, perhaps scandals. The old honor system would have to be changed. Standards would be lowered to those of other co-educational schools. And the glorious reputation of the university as a school for men would be trailed in the dust. Ultimately, in 1970, the most prestigious institution of higher education in Virginia, the University of Virginia, introduced co-education and in 1972 began to admit women on an equal basis with men. A three-judge federal district court confirmed, Virginia may not now deny to women, on the basis of sex, educational opportunities at the Charlottesville campus that are not afforded in other institutions operated by the state. Virginia describes the current absence of public single-sex higher education for women as an historical anomaly. But the historical record indicates action more deliberate than anomalous. First, protection of women against higher education. Next, schools for women far from equal in resources and stature to schools for men. Finally, conversion of the separate schools to co-education. The state legislature, prior to the advent of this controversy, had repealed all Virginia statutes requiring individual institutions to admit only men or women. And in 1990, an official commission, legislatively established to chart the future goals of higher education in Virginia, reaffirmed the policy of affording broad access while maintaining autonomy and diversity. Significantly, the commission reported, Because colleges and universities provide opportunities for students to develop values and learn from role models, it is extremely important that they deal with faculty, staff, and students without regard to sex, race, or ethnic origin. This statement, the Court of Appeals observed, is the only explicit one that we have found in the record in which the Commonwealth has expressed itself with respect to gender distinctions. Our 1982 decision in Mississippi University for Women prompted VMI to re-examine its male-only admission policy. 
Virginia relies on that re-examination as a legitimate basis for maintaining VMI's single-sex character. A mission study committee, appointed by the VMI Board of Visitors, studied the problem from October 1983 until May 1986, and in that month counseled against change of VMI status as a single-sex college. Whatever internal purpose the mission study committee served, and however well-meaning the framers of the report, we can hardly extract from that effort any Commonwealth policy, even-handedly, to advance diverse educational options. As the district court observed, the committee's analysis primarily focused on anticipated difficulties in attracting females to VMI, and the report overall supplied very little indication of how the conclusion was reached. In sum, we find no persuasive evidence in this record that VMI's male-only admission policy is in furtherance of a state policy of diversity. No such policy, the Fourth Circuit observed, can be discerned from the movement of all other public colleges and universities in Virginia away from single-sex education. That court also questioned how one institution with autonomy but with no authority over any other state institution can give effect to a state policy of diversity among institutions. A purpose genuinely to advance an array of educational options, as the Court of Appeals recognized, is not served by VMI's historic and constant plan, a plan to afford a unique educational benefit only to males. However liberally this plan serves the Commonwealth's sons, it makes no provision whatever for her daughters. That is not equal protection. Section B. Virginia next argues that VMI's adversative method of training provides educational benefits that cannot be made available, unmodified, to women. Alterations to accommodate women would necessarily be radical, so drastic, Virginia asserts, as to transform, indeed destroy, VMI's program. Men would be deprived of the unique opportunity currently available to them. Women would not gain that opportunity because their participation would eliminate the very aspects of the program that distinguish VMI from other institutions of higher education in Virginia. The district court forecast from expert witness testimony and the Court of Appeals accepted that coeducation would materially affect at least these three aspects of VMI's program. Physical training, the absence of privacy, and the adversative approach. 
and it is uncontested that women's admission would require accommodations, primarily in arranging housing assignments and physical training programs for female cadets. It is also undisputed, however, that the VMI methodology could be used to educate women. The district court even allowed that some women may prefer it to the methodology a women's college might pursue. Some women, at least, would want to attend VMI if they had the opportunity, the district court recognized, and some women, the expert testimony established, are capable of all of the individual activities required of VMI cadets. The parties, furthermore, agree that some women can meet the physical standards VMI now imposes on men. In some, as the Court of Appeals stated, neither the goal of producing citizen soldiers, VMI's raison d'etre, nor VMI's implementing methodology, is inherently unsuitable to women. In support of its initial judgment for Virginia, a judgment rejecting all equal protection objections presented by the United States, the district court made findings on gender-based developmental differences. These findings restate the opinions of Virginia's expert witnesses, opinions about typically male or typically female tendencies. For example, males tend to need an atmosphere of adversativeness, while females tend to thrive in a cooperative atmosphere. Quote, I'm not saying that some women don't do well under the adversative model, VMI's expert on educational institutions testified. Undoubtedly, there are some women who do but educational experiences must be designed around the rule, this expert maintained, and not around the exception. The United States does not challenge any expert witness estimation on average capacities or preferences of men and women. Instead, the United States emphasizes that time and again since this court's turning point decision in Reed v. Reed, we have cautioned reviewing courts to take a hard look at generalizations or tendencies of the kind pressed by Virginia and relied upon by the district court. State actors controlling gates to opportunity, we have instructed, may not exclude qualified individuals based on fixed notions concerning the roles and abilities of males and females. It may be assumed, for purposes of this decision, that most women would not choose VMI's adversative method. As Fourth Circuit Judge Motz observed, however, in her dissent from the Court of Appeals' denial of rehearing on Bonk, it is also probable that many men would not want to be educated in such an environment. Education, to be sure, 
is not a one-size-fits-all business. The issue, however, is not whether women or men should be forced to attend VMI. Rather, the question is whether the Commonwealth can constitutionally deny to women who have the will and capacity the training and attendant opportunities that VMI uniquely affords. The notion that admission of women would downgrade VMI's stature, destroy the adversative system and with it even the school, is a judgment hardly proved, a prediction hardly different from other self-fulfilling prophecies. Once routinely used to deny rights or opportunities. When women first sought admission to the bar, and access to legal education, concerns of the same order were expressed. For example, in 1876, the Court of Common Pleas of Hennepin County, Minnesota, explained why women were thought ineligible for the practice of law. Women train and educate the young, the court said which forbids that they shall bestow that time, early and late, and labor, so essential in attaining to the eminence to which the true lawyer should ever aspire. It cannot therefore be said that the opposition of courts to the admission of females to practice is, to any extent, the outgrowth of old fogeyism. It arises rather from a comprehension of the magnitude of the responsibilities connected with the successful practice of law, and a desire to grade up the profession. A like fear, according to a 1925 report, accounted for Columbia Law School's resistance to women's admission, although the faculty never maintained that women could not master legal learning. No, its argument has been more practical. If women were admitted to the Columbia Law School, the faculty said, then the choicer, more manly, and red-blooded graduates of our great universities would go to the Harvard Law School Medical faculties similarly resisted men and women as partners in the study of medicine. More recently, women seeking careers in policing encountered resistance based on fears that their presence would undermine male solidarity, deprive male partners of adequate assistance, and lead to sexual misconduct. Women's successful entry into the federal military academies and their participation in the nation's military forces indicate that Virginia's fears for the future of VMI may not be solidly grounded. The Commonwealth's justification for excluding all women from citizen-soldier training, for which some are qualified in any event, cannot rank as exceedingly persuasive, as we have explained, 
and applied that standard. Virginia and VMI trained their argument on means rather than end, and thus misperceived our precedent. Single-sex education at VMI serves an important governmental objective, they maintained, and exclusion of women is not only substantially related, it is essential to that objective. By this notably circular argument, the straightforward test Mississippi University for Women described was bent and bowed. The Commonwealth's misunderstanding, and in turn, the district courts, is apparent from VMI's mission. To produce citizen soldiers, individuals imbued with love of learning, confident in the functions and attitudes of leadership, possessing a high sense of public service. Advocates of the American democracy and free enterprise system, and ready to defend their country in time of national peril. Surely, that goal is great enough to accommodate women, who today count as citizens in our American democracy, equal in stature to men. Just as surely, the Commonwealth's great goal is not substantially advanced, by women's categorical exclusion, in total disregard of their individual merit, from the Commonwealth's premier citizen-soldier corps. Virginia, in sum, has fallen far short of establishing the exceedingly persuasive justification that must be the solid base for any gender-defined classification. Part 6 In the second phase of the litigation, Virginia presented its remedial plan, maintain VMI as a male-only college, and create VWIL as a separate program for women. The plan met district court approval. The Fourth Circuit, in turn, deferentially reviewed the Commonwealth's proposal and decided that the two single-sex programs directly served Virginia's reasserted purposes, single-gender education and achieving the results of an adversative method in a military environment. Inspecting the VMI and V-Will educational programs to determine whether they afforded to both genders benefits comparable in substance, if not in form and detail, the Court of Appeals concluded that Virginia had arranged for men and women opportunities sufficiently comparable to survive equal protection evaluation. The United States challenges this remedial ruling as pervasively misguided. VMI has successfully managed another notable change. The school admitted its first African-American cadets 
1968. As the district court noted, VMI established a program on retention of black cadets, designed to offer academic and social-cultural support to minority members of a dominantly white and tradition-oriented student body. The school maintains a special recruitment programs for blacks, which the district court found has had little, if any, effect on VMI's method of accomplishing its mission. Section A. A remedial decree, this court has said, must closely fit the constitutional violation. It must be shaped to place persons unconstitutionally denied an opportunity or advantage in the position they would have occupied in the absence of discrimination. The constitutional violation in this suit is the categorical exclusion of women from an extraordinary educational opportunity afforded men. A proper remedy for an unconstitutional exclusion, we have explained, aims to eliminate, so far as possible, the discriminatory effects of the past and to bar like discrimination in the future. Virginia chose not to eliminate, but to leave untouched, VMI's exclusionary policy. For women only, however, Virginia proposed a separate program, different in kind from VMI and unequal in tangible and intangible facilities. Having violated the Constitution's equal protection requirement, Virginia was obliged to show that its remedial proposal directly addressed and related to the violation. The equal protection denied to women ready, willing, and able to benefit from educational opportunities of the kind VMI offers. Virginia described VWIL as a parallel program and asserted that VWIL shares VMI's mission of producing citizen soldiers and VMI's goals of providing education, military training, mental and physical discipline, character, and leadership development. If the VWIL program could not eliminate the discriminatory effects of the past, could it at least bar like discrimination in the future? A comparison of the programs said to be parallel informs our answer. In exposing the character of, and differences in, the VMI and VWIL programs, we recapitulate facts earlier presented. VWIL affords women no opportunity to experience the rigorous military training for which VMI is famed. Instead, the VWIL program 
de-emphasizes military education and uses a cooperative method of education which reinforces self-esteem. VWIL students participate in ROTC and a largely ceremonial Virginia Corps of Cadets, but Virginia deliberately did not make VWIL a military institute. The VWIL House is not a military-style residence, and VWIL students need not live together throughout the four-year program, eat meals together, or wear uniforms during the school day. VWIL students thus do not experience the barracks life crucial to the VMI experience, the Spartan living arrangements designed to foster an egalitarian ethic. The most important aspects of the VMI educational experience occur in the barracks, the district court found, yet Virginia deemed that core experience non-essential, indeed inappropriate, for training its female citizen soldiers. VWIL students receive their leadership training in seminars, externships, and speaker series. Episodes and encounters lacking the physical rigor, mental stress, minute regulation of behavior, and indoctrination in desirable values made hallmarks of VMI's citizen-soldier training. Kept away from the pressures, hazards, and psychological bonding characteristic of VMI's adversative training, VWIL students will not know the feeling of tremendous accomplishment commonly experienced by VMI's successful cadets. Virginia maintains that these methodological differences are justified pedagogically based on important differences between men and women in learning and developmental needs. Psychological and sociological differences, Virginia describes as real and not stereotypes. The task force charged with developing the leadership program for women drawn from the staff and faculty at Mary Baldwin College, determined that a military model, and especially VMI's adversative method, would be wholly inappropriate for educating and training most women. The Commonwealth embraced the task force view, as did expert witnesses who testified for Virginia. As earlier stated, generalizations about the way women are, estimates of what is appropriate for most women, no longer justify denying opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description. Notably, Virginia never asserted that VMI's method of education suits most men. It is also revealing that Virginia accounted for its failure to make the VWIL experience 
the entirely militaristic experience of VMI on the ground that VWIL is planned for women who do not necessarily expect to pursue military careers. By that reasoning, VMI's entirely militaristic program would be inappropriate for men in general or as a group. For only about 15% of VMI cadets enter career military service. In contrast to the generalizations about women on which Virginia rests, we note again these dispositive realities. VMI's implementing methodology is not inherently unsuitable to women. Some women do well under the adversative model. Some women, at least, would want to attend VMI if they had the opportunity. Some women are capable of all of the individual activities required of VMI cadets and can meet the physical standards VMI now imposes on men. It is on behalf of these women that the United States has instituted this suit, and it is for them that a remedy must be crafted, a remedy that will end their exclusion from a state-supplied educational opportunity for which they are fit, a decree that will bar like discrimination in the future. Section B. In myriad respects other than military training, VWIL does not qualify as VMI's equal. VWIL's student body, faculty, course offerings, and facilities hardly match VMI's, nor can the VWIL graduate anticipate the benefits associated with VMI's 157-year history, the school's prestige, and its influential alumni network. Mary Baldwin College, whose degree VWIL students will gain, enrolls first-year women with an average combined SAT score about 100 points lower than the average score for VMI freshmen. The Mary Baldwin faculty holds significantly fewer PhDs and receives substantially lower salaries than the faculty at VMI. Mary Baldwin does not offer a VWIL student the range of curricular choices available to a VMI cadet. VMI awards baccalaureate degrees in liberal arts, biology, chemistry, civil engineering, electrical and computer engineering, and mechanical engineering. VWIL students attend a school that does not have a math and science focus. They cannot take at Mary Baldwin any courses in engineering or the advanced math and physics courses VMI offers. For physical training, Mary Baldwin has two multi-purpose fields and one gymnasium. 
VMI has an NCAA competition level indoor track and field facility, a number of multi-purpose fields, baseball, soccer, and lacrosse fields, an obstacle course, large boxing, wrestling, and martial arts facilities, an 11 laps to the mile indoor running course, an indoor pool, indoor and outdoor rifle ranges, and a football stadium that also contains a practice field and outdoor track. Although Virginia has represented that it will provide equal financial support for in-state VWIL students and VMI cadets, and the VMI Foundation has agreed to endow VWIL with $5.4625 million, the difference between the two schools' financial reserves is pronounced. Mary Baldwin's endowment, currently about $19 million, will gain an additional $35 million based on future commitments. VMI's current endowment, $131 million, the largest public college per student endowment in the nation will gain $220 million. The VWIL student does not graduate with the advantage of a VMI degree. Her diploma does not unite her with the legions of VMI graduates who have distinguished themselves in military and civilian life. VMI alumni are exceptionally close to the school, and that closeness accounts in part for VMI's success in attracting applicants. A VWIL graduate cannot assume that the network of business owners, corporations, VMI graduates, and non-graduate employers interested in hiring VMI graduates will be equally responsive to her search for employment. Virginia, in sum, while maintaining VMI for men only, has failed to provide any comparable single-gender women's institution. Instead, the Commonwealth has created a VWIL program, fairly appraised as a pale shadow of VMI in terms of the range of curricular choices and faculty stature, funding, prestige, alumni support, and influence. Virginia's VWIL solution is reminiscent of the remedy Texas proposed 50 years ago in response to a state trial court's 1946 ruling that given the Equal Protection Guarantee, African Americans could not be denied a legal education at a state facility. Reluctant to admit African Americans to its flagship University of Texas Law School, the state set up a separate school for Heman Sweat and other black law students. As originally opened, the new school had no independent faculty or library, and it lacked accreditation. Nevertheless, the state trial and appellate courts were satisfied that the new school offered Sweat opportunities for the study of law 
substantially equivalent to those offered by the state to white students at the University of Texas. Before this court considered the case, the new school had gained a faculty of five full-time professors, a student body of 23, a library of some 16,500 volumes serviced by a full-time staff, a practice court and legal aid association, and one alumnus who had become a member of the Texas Bar. This court contrasted resources at the new school with those at the school from which Sweat had been excluded. The University of Texas Law School had a full-time faculty of 16, a student body of 850, a library containing over 65,000 volumes, scholarship funds, a law review, and moot court facilities. More important than the tangible features the court emphasized are those qualities which are incapable of objective measurement but which make for greatness in a school, including reputation of the faculty, experience of the administration, position and influence of the alumni, standing in the community, traditions, and prestige. Facing the marked differences reported in the Sweat opinion, the court unanimously ruled that Texas had not shown substantial equality in the separate educational opportunities the state offered. Accordingly, the court held, the Equal Protection Clause required Texas to admit African Americans to the University of Texas Law School. In line with Sweat, we rule here that Virginia has not shown substantial equality in the separate educational opportunities the Commonwealth supports at VWIL and VMI. Section C. When Virginia tendered its VWIL plan, the Fourth Circuit did not inquire whether the proposed remedy approved by the district court Placed women denied the VMI advantage in the position they would have occupied in the absence of discrimination. Instead, the Court of Appeals considered whether the Commonwealth could provide, with fidelity to the equal protection principle, separate and unequal educational programs for men and women. The Fourth Circuit acknowledged that the V-Will degree from Mary Baldwin College lacks the historical benefit and prestige of a degree from VMI. The Court of Appeals further observed that VMI is an ongoing and successful institution with a long history, and there remains no comparable single-gender women's institution. Nevertheless, the appeals court declared the substantially different and significantly unequal VWIL program satisfactory. The court reached that result by revising the applicable standard of review. The Fourth Circuit displaced the standard developed in our precedent, 
and substituted a standard of its own invention. We have earlier described the deferential review in which the Court of Appeals engaged, a brand of review inconsistent with the more exacting standard our precedent requires. Quoting in part from Mississippi University for Women, the Court of Appeals candidly described its own analysis as one capable of checking a legislative purpose ranked as pernicious, but generally according deference to the legislative will. Recognizing that it had extracted from our decisions a test yielding little or no scrutiny of the effect of a classification directed at single-gender education, the Court of Appeals devised another test, a substantive comparability inquiry, and proceeded to find that new test satisfied. The Fourth Circuit plainly erred in exposing Virginia's V-Will plan to a deferential analysis, for all gender-based classifications today warrant heightened scrutiny. Valuable as V-Will may prove for students who seek the program offered, Virginia's remedy affords no cure at all for the opportunities and advantages withheld from women who want a VMI education and can make the grade. In sum, Virginia's remedy does not match the constitutional violation. The Commonwealth has shown no exceedingly persuasive justification for withholding from women qualified for the experience, premier training of the kind VMI affords. Part 7 A generation ago, the authorities controlling Virginia higher education, despite long-established tradition, agreed to innovate and favorably entertained the then-relatively-new idea that there must be no discrimination by sex in offering educational opportunity. Commencing in 1970, Virginia opened to women educational opportunities at the Charlottesville campus that were not afforded in other state-operated institutions. A federal court approved the Commonwealth's innovation, emphasizing that the University of Virginia offered courses of instruction not available elsewhere. The court further noted, There exists at Charlottesville a prestige factor not paralleled in other Virginia educational institutions. VMI, too, offers an educational opportunity no other Virginia institution provides, and the school's prestige associated with its success in developing citizen soldiers is unequaled. Virginia has closed this facility to its daughters and instead has devised for them a parallel program with the faculty less impressively credentialed and less well-paid. 
more limited course offerings, fewer opportunities for military training and for scientific specialization. VMI Beyond Question possesses, to a far greater degree than the VWIL program, those qualities which are incapable of objective measurement, but which make for greatness in a school, including position and influence of the alumni, standing in the community, traditions, and prestige. Women seeking and fit for a VMI quality education cannot be offered anything less under the Commonwealth's obligation to afford them genuinely equal protection. A prime part of the history of our Constitution, historian Richard Morris recounted, is the story of the extension of constitutional rights and protections to people once ignored or excluded. VMI's story continued as our comprehension of we the people expanded. There is no reason to believe that the admission of women capable of all the activities required of VMI cadets would destroy the Institute rather than enhance its capacity to serve the more perfect union. For the reasons stated, the initial judgment of the Court of Appeals is affirmed, the final judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the Contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us. <laughs>